Welcome, everybody, to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am John Cribbs. I'm here with Christopher Funderberg. How are you doing, Chris? I am doing very good, John, because tonight, uh, this episode, this is the first of our new episodes of the Pink Smoke Podcast that aren't going to be trapped behind a Patreon paywall here going forward for the show we want to make it to available to all audiences so everyone can hear it our patreon subscribers will get episodes a week early if you're a patreon subscriber here in this early this is our shout out to you thank you for supporting the show we really couldn't keep the site running without you but one of the reasons that we wanted to get it out from behind the paywall is because we want people to be able to hear the great guests we're having on like our guest this evening the filmmaker and film historian and music historian mr bill tech how are you doing tonight bill well, thank you for asking, Chris Funderberg. Uh, hello, John Cribbs. Well, let me tell you how I'm doing. I'm the type of guy that likes to roam around. Yeah. Pretty girls are. I roam from town to town. I know. I'm a wanderer. That's how I am. You're a wanderer. And that leads into what we are talking about tonight, which is the Wanderers, uh, the great Philip Kaufman uh, gang movie made in 1979, reflecting on uh, uh, set in 1962. And the reason... 63. But yeah, 63. Yes, 63. The book is 62. The movie is 63 for reasons that are obvious at one point in the movie. Um, but the reason we wanted to have you on the show, Bill, you've done the show a few times. Uh, you're a, a compatriot of ours, a compadre, somebody that we love having on and talking to you. I think before John and I are huge Wanderers fans. We've been Wanderers fans a really long time. And before I even knew who you were, like the first thing I knew about you is that you also like the Wanderers. I think before I had seen the great uh, Peter Bogdanovich documentary you made one day since yesterday, um, before I knew anything you about you as a person or a filmmaker, I just heard somebody, and it must have been John, be like, oh yeah, this guy Bill Tech, he likes the Wanderers too. And I was like, oh, I'm clearly going to like this guy. I'm clearly going to enjoy meeting uh, Mr. Bill Tech. And I'll always remember that first uh, night we met each other, we were driving around and kind of hanging out and I made a wrong turn. And, you know, next thing you know, I pulled over, I was going to ask this little, little Irish guy for directions and fuck, like we were in Ducky Boy territory. I just, I'll never forget that. Me and you. I totally remember that as well. And that is something I immediately caught my eye before I saw your wonderful movie. And before I got to meet you guys, uh, I also was like, oh, I'm not the only person. You know, that's what's been cool about film Twitter, you know, parts yeah. of it has been meeting people like yourselves. It's been a thrill. And then, yeah, when you meet somebody that can talk to Wanderers, Wanderers forever, boys. Wanderers forever. Wanderers, wanderers forever. forever. You're absolutely right. Film the, with this positive side of film Twitter is having a thread between you and Tony Stella and other Wanderers fans where we're all like planning on getting Wanderers jackets, you know. And <laughs> Although you're going to get, you know, the I'm going to get the Chubby Galasso at this point because, yeah, I've moved past that, sadly. <laughs> I, think I, 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 I think in quarantine, I'm headed there, too. I think I, I think I think I might have rocked a couple of LBs during quarantine as well. I may have also. You know, uh, I was when they re-released the movie a few years ago, I think I heard an interview with Ken Wall where he was saying, we all still have our jackets. Why don't we all get the jackets and go to a club one night? Wow. And how they used to go out with the jackets on every once in a while. Oh, and that's I did, awesome. I did see, and I don't want to be premature, but at the, at the re-release a few years ago, I saw Phil Kaufman and his son, um, his son's name I, it might be 
my Peter Kaufman, his son Peter Kaufman, and they both had their Wanderers jackets on doing. Oh the my Q. God, that's so great! It's funny too. This is I was thinking about this today uh, because I watched <laughs> I watched the movie like four times this week in preparation for the episode. Um, because I just can't get enough of it. But it's it's a genuine cult hit, I think, too. I think in an era where so much stuff is known by everybody, I feel like I don't come across genuine cult items anymore. You know, that's something like John Carpenter's Halloween isn't a cult film. That's a mainstream film or something like that. And Wanders is still a movie that a lot of people haven't seen and don't really know what it's about and that's one category and then there's the people who've seen it and love it like somebody i always think about this there's some friends of mine my very best friends from high school and college went on to be like a fairly successful band very successful band but they're like uh, uh the kind of act that if you mention who they are to people there's only two reactions i don't know who they are or i love them right? And I feel like it's the same thing with the Wanderers, where it's like you mention Wanderers to people and they're like, oh, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Or, oh my God, the Wanderers. And that's, that's it. There's not people who are like, I saw the Wanderers. It's okay, kind of thing. I feel like you don't run into that personality or that reaction. I think that's 100% true. 100% true. That movie, from the minute it starts, it just grabs you. From the minute that the Orion logo comes on, and yeah. you have that spinning, uh, you're hearing the Three Stooges theme yeah, in the yeah. background. The Three Blind Mice. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it's, I told myself, I just watched it recently. Uh, and I was like, I don't want to watch it just for the podcast. I just saw it. I'll just kind of skim through it. But of course, yeah. it moves like a house on fire. You can't stop yeah. watching it. I yes. just I watched it again and I was like, this is so I mean it just goes from scene to scene. Great so scene to great scene to great scene. There's yeah. like you're like, ah, oh, that was a good scene. I'll turn it off now and then the next scene starts and you're like, Oh shit, it's this scene over oh. and over and over throughout the movie. John, <laughs> how about this so we don't have to worry about getting ahead of ourselves? Take us through the plot of the Wanderers a little bit. Set it up for us. So the Wanderers, nineteen seventy nine Phil Kaufman, it's the story of a gang in the Bronx, known as the Wanderers. They're an Italian gang, and they go to a school with lots of other different gangs, and they're all usually based on creed, right? You've got your uh, Polish gangs, you got your Black gang, you got your Irish gang, uh, et cetera. you got Chinese gang, of course, the Wongs. And 27 guys all named Wong, and they all know jujitsu. That's how this episode's going to be a lot of me quoting the movie as well. A lot of both of us quoting the movie. So anyway, All three of us quoting the movie. All three. <laughs> It's open forward. Wanderers forever, boys. <laughs> As we waited until now to make ourselves known. Okay. Um, so, but the, what I kind of immediately love about this movie, and I think it was really genius because it's based on a book by Richard Price, which is almost sort of like a series of short stories, each chapter, you know, kind of set in this world. But what Kaufman does is he puts a moment early where they're all in school and they're all in Mr. Sharp's class and Mr. Sharp is trying to teach them all a lesson about brotherhood, right? And how, you know, we, we, we run out of like racist names for, you know, everyone really quickly and it completely backfires on them. Yeah. It's a a great, essentially incites a race war by trying (laughs) to get the the people to get along. Great. It sets up the tone for this movie so perfectly because, you know, while it's very content, you know, you, you understand it's very kind of contentious and it's like, it's like a powder keg in a lot of ways. There's this kind of mutual respect between the gangs that you kind of appreciate at the same time where, you know, it's not something that's going to turn really bad. 
it's just like that's sort of just the, the period that we're living in, you know, where like there are definitely sides being drawn. There are definitely people on one side and people on the other, but they kind of have this weird kind of begrudging respect for each other that you kind of get from this scene. So that even though there's uh, you know, it, it breaks out the Richie, the head of the Wanderers uh, challenges Clinton, the head of the uh, Del Bombers, Stitch. Yeah. Uh, to, a, to something like a, like a, uh, like a rumble or like a brawl or something like that, it quickly turns into a football game between them. You know, yes. I think that's like the good naturedness of this movie. You know, it just kind of immediately sets up this idea that like, it's kind of a dangerous world. It's a fucked up world. But at the same time, these guys being gangs, it's not, it's not necessarily something negative. It's, it's interesting because the tone of this movie, I think is one of the most fascinating things about it. Cause to me, this movie is just like a pure joy. Like I experience joy when I watch this movie, but it's also like <laughs> fucked up and indefensible at the same time too. There's a lot of this movie, like this movie is not a roadmap on how to live your life in any way. And a lot of the subjects, if you treated them with a certain kind of seriousness, like you should not be having fun with this stuff in some way. Um, and that's one of the things they think is really fascinating about the tone. I think a, a kind of cousin film to it that I think about a lot is obviously Walter Hill's uh, The Warriors, right? Which is from the same era. It's about gangs in New York. Came out and the this, same year, yeah. Yes. Um, and it is like overtly cartoonish, that movie. There's like, you know baseball mimes and shit in it right this movie is like only one step less of a cartoon than that but i think by taking that less of a step it it uh adds an incredible amount to it especially later in the film when it becomes more when it adds more melodrama to it and i don't mean melodrama in a bad way i think melodrama is a good word in the context of this film uh but i do think that like it isn't trying to be realistic at all in the way that the warriors isn't trying to be realistic in a certain way. This is a, this is a larger than life movie. And later on we can talk about what I actually think the best comparisons filmmaker comparisons for this movie are what I think it's actually trying to do. And Philip Kaufman's trying to do, but the tone is very hard to describe in isolation. You know, um, Bill, what do you what do you think of you know the tone that that John and I are describing with this movie? Sort of that needle that it threads. It's one of the most spectacular things about the movie is is these kind of the way it kind of wildly shifts in tone on a dime. And and I'm hoping there's a lot of people that have never seen it that are listening to the podcast. So I don't want to ruin it for them. Yeah. But the, it shifts on a dime from like, man, this is so much fun, good times, 1950s, happy days, to like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen here? And yeah. the eeriness of the movie. And then it's, it's sort of like kind of hyper cartoony, but at the same time, super violent and yes. things have consequences and as much fun as it has with sexuality there's a super consequential uh um there's a consequence that happens regarding everything yeah heaviness and seriousness to something that it's treating as a goof a lot of the time too you, you know even if it's like oh well, these guys are going to go out and it's 50s hijinks oh no everything has serious serious repercussions emotionally uh and for the rest of their lives and it's one of the most kind of clear portraits of kind of being trapped by your own surroundings and then in your own bullshit that you bring to those surroundings it's almost like saying if you make it out of this it's a fucking miracle yeah. I mean, it's a 
pretty heavy movie disguised as a super light movie, but it's still a ton of fun. And I yes. love that it starts just right from the beginning, uh, being a film about consequences, because you got Richie with his girlfriend, Despy, right? He's trying to convince her to go all the way. She's uncomfortable with it, but he's trying, he's, 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 he's getting there. He's rounding uh, third base, right? And then something else is happening outside where uh, Turkey, one of the Wanderers, has decided he wants to join uh, the Fordham Baldies, right? A rival gang. And Joey from the Wanderers is trying to stop him, and they end up getting chased by the Baldies, and they whistle, they whistle for help. The Wanderers, the wanderers whistle. whistle. Yeah. And that's what makes Richie... Get Despy pregnant. Get Despy <laughs> pregnant, exactly. That's something that's going to have a consequence later on. But I just love how this world is so immediately tied together in the film that you know something that's happening blocks away is going to impact what's happening, you know, in this first scene that we're in. It's just great how all these things are tied together. And also the way that scene is shot is so great too, with his feet, his booted feet on the TV screen where you're seeing the three stooges and then it cuts to a, a horror movie later on, just his feet pressing against the screen, the way it's filmed. It's so oh, Rich, great. Rich, you just want one thing. <laughs> Oh my goodness. You don't gotta well, worry about your reputation. Well, you I know, love Despy. That might be my most controversial relationship to this movie based on other Warriors fans, is I am very pro Despy. I think Despy is right almost the whole movie. I think that Despy knows what the world is about. I think she understands the parameters for existence in a way that the other people don't. Well, you know, Tony Callum's performance as Despy right. is one it's like it's it's well all the performances in the movie are extraordinary but her performance is like singularly uh comic and full of uh bravado and yeah. fearless and she is still such a fan like she was at the at the screening that they had a yeah. couple of years ago in new york and she's so game to like yeah that that's a pretty great performance let me ask you, <laughs> let me ask you and she enjoys it let me ask you tech chris as a fan of desby who is your favorite character in The Wanderers? Ooh, my favorite character? Who's your favorite? I, I don't know because I love all The Wanderers, the guys, for different reasons. But I can tell you that I saw this movie, at, I, I like everyone, well, not like everyone, but I had the class, in 1979, I was mm, 12, so I didn't see it in the theater. But I had this, I had the clamshell uh, Warner Brothers um, <laughs> v VHS that I saw. Yeah. And I've always loved the music of the 50s. And we talk about these shifts in tone. One of the most spectacular things is the way that the music helped shift. And obviously music helped shift tone in movies. But boy, it's really clear in The Wanderers. Just, I mean, it's, it's, it's usually, it's just so well done. I know movies do that all the time. But to answer your question, um, I had never seen it at the movies until this recent re-release yeah. a couple of years ago to tie in with the with the blu-ray release on um on kino and um i i saw karen allen's face on a movie oh. screen now i've been a karen allen fan since raiders and then i went back and saw animal house i had seen raiders first and karen allen, allen is a wonderful presence in the movies yeah but her face when you're looking at it the size of a building is yeah. a special effect. I've never seen a face like that. You just smile just from, and the way he shoots the strip poker scene with Tony Kellum, with Despy, yeah. Karen Allen, with, uh, with the two wanderers, with, um, you know, with, with Ken with Wall yeah. and, uh, and John Frederick. Um, it is, it, it's so close on their faces. 
that you feel the intimacy of that game and the, the, the sexiness of it. And I just think Karen Allen's face is um, probably one of the top things in movies. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, she's um, incredible. That character is incredible. And I love the way that character is handled and built and put in the film and taken out. I, yeah, she's she's incredible. I wouldn't say Despy is my favorite, John. It's I yeah, mean, <laughs> there's so many of my favorites, but but Karen Allen is incredible. I agree with that 100. percent She might be my favorite. She might be my favorite. She might hoping, be my favorite too. I was hoping I was hoping Despy would be your favorite because then we'd all have a female favorite from the movie. Because yours yeah. has got to be Pee Wee. It's Pee Wee, obviously. Yeah, Pee Wee, the great Linda Mans, so good. What did you say about pricks? <laughs> The head of the ladies auxiliary. One of my favorite moments in the film, right? When they, um, they've got Richie and Joey and they uh, take them to the bridge and they're going to, you know, yeah. Tie the twine around them and throw the, the, uh, the stones off the bridge. And then she peeks at him. She can't help it. You know? Yeah. Curious. It's just this really unguarded, beautiful moment where she's, she can't. I think the most beautiful moment in the movie is when, is when, uh, um, terror has her in his arms and she's you're drunk terrorists you don't mean what you're saying you're drunk you know, that moment no is when you're drunk yeah it's so beautiful it's her so it's beautiful really and they're these like cartoon characters almost that they get this beautiful moment out of it's inc- it's the tone of this movie is incredible in a lot of ways um that scene it's it's like these characters that are almost cartoonish you have terror who's a big fat bald guy who eats pizza slices in a single bite you know just like jams a new york floppy slice in and you have like this tiny little uh, androgynous woman this impish woman and it feels like these are these are uh uh cartoonish caricatures of people and that it's still able to have these really affecting moments between them is incredible. It's Even incredible. the introduction of Perry, leave the kid alone is yeah. like, where does he come from? He's just kind of pops up out of nowhere and he's just, he's like a character that's all ready to go right there yes. in the corner. That's one of the things that's so spectacular about it is that it, it has these characters like Perry, um, like Chubbs, Chubbs yeah. um, th- that, they come out of nowhere. They're fully formed. It's uh, mythic. It's cartoony. It's scary. But at the same time, it's very real. Yeah. The consequences are very real. How often is there a movie that has kind of these high, high, even the Warriors doesn't feel realistic. No. The Warriors you know? never has that kind of melodrama to it that this does melodrama in the sense of heightened human emotions impacting at their sort of full height and full power like emotions that are larger than life yeah right or even the humanistic tone that 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 phil kaufman has in so many of his movies it's really a a a trick i wonder if the the three stooges isn't something because it's funny but it's also super kind of violent and sort of kind of mean um if but it is it is a loaded up movie well that's it's funny you mentioned the three stooges because one thing i like about this movie that i try and uh, explain to people 
One of the uh, modern uh, tendencies, I'd say it's really accelerated in the past five years, is the idea that you watch a movie and it's a guidebook on how to live your life. So if a movie's showing immoral and unacceptable behavior and you watch it, you're an idiot who's approving of immoral and unacceptable behavior and you're probably going to be influenced by this movie to go out and do dumb, unacceptable things, right? That these movies are somehow moral guidebooks, right? This movie, nobody you know, like, like elbow tit and cheating at strip poker and getting in gang brawls, right? And uh, all of the different gangs using racial slurs and all of this type of different stuff. It's all bad if you're taking this movie as like a map on how to live your life, right? But I think this movie belongs more to the tradition of like a picaresque of something like Tristam Shandy or Jacques Le Fatalist or Gargantua and Pantagruel, where you have like in uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel, the scene where he sees the beautiful woman on the street, right? And he starts like harassing her, like whispering in her ear how much he wants to sleep with her. He follows her into church even and is like whispering these really nasty things in her ear in church. And she's finally like get out of here, I'm in church. So he leaves and he gets the gland from a dog in heat and sprays it on her. And every dog in town runs in and tries to hump her while she's in church, right? This is obviously an incredibly fucking funny thing, but it's like not good. There's no nice, there's no moral dimension to it. It's just incredibly funny and fun. And I think the Warriors, the Warriors, I think the Wanderers belongs to that that tradition of art of like, we're not saying you should be, you know, getting incredibly wasted and bringing a 50 year old woman to the party. You know what I mean? We're not saying cheat at strip poker. We're not telling you to do this. We're just telling you that uh, art can exist in an amoral space in some way. And there's like a, a kind of alchemical artistic joy to be had in all of these things that if they were taken as real behaviors would be depravities, right? They would be completely <laughs> unacceptable if they were real behaviors in some way but in the film they're just kind of um joyous this movie's a joy this movie is about like you know italian and chinese and black gangs who hate each other getting in a rumble and it's incredibly fun in that way well i think that as much as it's like a, there these are character sketches taken from very good character stretch sketches from the novel mm-hmm. um i think that philip kaufman is aware of the the tra- transitory nature of this time in life, you know, where there's clearly it's 1963. Uh, we hear Kennedy's uh, assassination comes into the plot and we know that these characters are going to move away from this, that they can't stay there and be like they are forever. Basically he sets up two things. If you know, you stay in that environment, if you stay with those same people, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to become a Galasso brother, a genuine criminal, you know, yeah. Or you're going to become a ducky boy, like a soulless, you know, creep in a community. And it's amazing. Those films are, scenes are filmed like a horror movie. They are. Yeah, I think Hawkman had a lot of the, you know, body snatchers still in him, you know, when he made those scenes. Um, Yes, this is the movie he made right after the uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. Yeah. So I think, you know, for when Joey and Perry ultimately get out like that, and and they are the wanderers, they are the ones who want to roam around, who want to get out there that's the correct answer. You know, it's like, this is amazing, beautiful time of your life, but it's, 
it's going to, it's not going to last forever. It's going to change. Yeah. But I think you also can't escape it. I think the idea of wandering, some is, people can't escape it. That's is right. impossible. I think the wandering is a beautiful fantasy. That's why I think Despy's right. Is that like Richie's life is not going to be going to see Bob Dylan at the village Vanguard with Karen Allen. That's like a ludicrous vision of, for what his life would be. His life would be with somebody like Despy in that neighborhood, living that kind of life. I think that's who he is, but yes, Bill. No, 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 just it's, 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 that's one of the saddest things about the movie is that it's not that predetermined. Like, yeah, when, 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 when Tony uh, Ganios, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, when Tony Ganios, um, John Frederick, um, what are their characters' names? Joey and Perry. When Joey and Perry escape, it's it's man, it's circumstance, it's happenstance. It's you know the dad is is getting loud and they break the ball on his head and they're scared. They think they killed him. They got to get out of dodge and they run. But you 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 meet those guys and you meet them in showbiz sometimes. You know, yeah. Like yeah, I grew up in the Bronx and da, 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 da. And then the next thing I knew, I went out to San Francisco and I yeah. faced a whole other life waiting for them. And, and Richie by a misses it by a hair. And yeah. the camera, I don't want to give away the end, but when he's trapped, you can sense the fact that his friends are not trapped and the fact that he's trying to embrace the, the, something that's already passed. Already the song doesn't mean something to him. He's trying to get into that headspace where he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. The headspace he was in at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. yeah. He can't quite get there. And at the end, he gets there. You know, we all try yeah. to... That's one of the most... You're right. There's more irony to it than I was letting on. Well, don't you think the ending of that movie, you know what the ending, the final shot reminds me of so much and what I think this movie really is, right? It's the exact same final sequence from Knights of Kiberia, which is the movie about, you know, where Julia Messina plays the prostitute and she's kind of ruined. Her life seems like it's going to be unhappy and she gets like... Uh, like a traveling group of singing people. She just sort of gets caught up in the stream and she's very sad and they sort of bring her around to where she's smiling and won over a little bit, sort of like the life is going to continue on. This isn't the end of Richie's life. This is Richie's life continuing, but it is super bittersweet and you don't feel like, oh, everything's going to be okay for either of them. That's not the tone you give at the end of the movie from either of those movies. But what I think this movie is, is like American Fellini, that is of every tone of an artist that I've ever seen. I think that the easiest to compare this movie to is Fellini, who does similar sort of cartoonish, larger than life, sexy, funny, weird stuff in his movies. But sorry, not to get too far. No, a great comparison because um, as Annette, uh, is it Annette Indorf? Indorf? Or- yeah, Annette Indorf. She wrote that great book about Phil. And um, I think she notes that he's the most European that's a weird term, yeah. right? European. And, but if we do all agree that maybe there are certain things that European directors do, certain themes and so forth, that Phil is probably the closest to that kind of director of yeah. the American Mavericks. And if we agree with that term. But I think <laughs> he, he really is really close to Fellini. And I know, you know, Phil traveled all over Europe and Italy and all his movies are kind of, to me, have that flavor. They, that they're the most kind of cosmic, they're the most like that of any of that, yeah. the directors of that period. Um, and I think that that's a great comparison. It's super Fellini-esque. I mean, I mean, um, 
like the Linda Man's character, like like terror, like even like 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 you said when they, when they when they introduced Tony, I mean Tony Ganios's character. Um, it's totally like a like a Fellini movie, and the- yes, you can see Lestrada and the terror. You can see uh, so much of Evitaloni and the party scenes, and like the young brother kind of brotherhood of young men kind of stuff, and just that sort of carnival. It's it's not like a dark carnival, you know what I mean? That's kind of conjures the wrong tone, but a carnival-esque atmosphere that also has seriousness to it, that also has heaviness and consequence, like you've been saying, which I think is something in Fellini. I could certainly see Erlen von Lid, you know, in black and white being in a mm-hmm. Fellini movie, you know? <laughs> this, sure. full, this full bald head and then the uh, housing the pizza, ripping the, the chain link off of the fence. But also the way he care the stuff with Linda Manns, that's very Fellini, you know, to have like a huge fat guy and a tiny little person, you know, that, that reminds me of, 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 uh, Lestrada, you know, and stuff like that. There's so much going on in that movie. And, um, are you guys familiar with some of the differences in the quote unquote director's cut, which is not technically a director's cut, I don't think, but the cut that was shown a few years ago, I think it was a, a film form maybe. I've never seen it. No, I didn't. I've only seen the... It was about six, seven minutes longer, and it hit a couple of, um, a couple of interesting points. Um, when... when um, is it Alan Rosenberg's character, the guy who plays Turkey? Turkey, yeah. Yeah. That performance, right? Yeah. Alan Rosenberg's performance as Turkey. If that's not one of the top, and I don't, I'm not a huge list guy, but that's a top 10 1970s performance. <laughs> there is, there is, he is such a, an appalling character. You just want to crawl through the screen and choke the life out of this guy. Oh, I mean, come I, on. He wasn't I, as bad as all that. Not oh, <laughs> Very funny. I, I can't, I, I just detest <laughs> Turkey and I don't even feel like I'm watching a, a, an actor. I feel like he's that character. He's that good. Yeah. Him and Tony are doing so they're all greater than picture, but he really, he really does not care how unsympathetic he comes off. And um, so he, when he goes to see the ducky boy and he, he kind of offers to, I think he says, if you ask him if he wants him to blow him, I believe in the parlance yeah. of our time. In, in the movie, he just asked to go to the park, but the original dialogue in, was, I'll give you, I'll it, give you a blow job. Yeah. Which he is says funny. it in the, in the, in the other version. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. You actually hear him say it. And then the ducky boy responds, like, what did you say to me? And, he, and then he says, oh, no, I just want to go to the park. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, these are my words. But he says, I'm not a fag, I'm a Marine or whatever. And he yeah. starts to protest. And all the, the, I think it's much scarier that the ducky boys never speak. Because in this one, you hear a guy actually say, what did you say? Yeah. Um, much more eerie. But... Um, Either way, that's there. And then the, the scene is a little bit longer when, um, when, when um, uh, again, I'm sorry, forgive me for not knowing the character's names, but when John Frederick and Tony Ganios, uh, uh, yeah. are they? Joey. I, Perry and Joey. Sure. Right, Perry right, right. Joey. When Perry and Joey are, are hanging around in, right before the dad comes in, before they take off for San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're – it's a little more, um, I don't know if it's homoerotic is the right word, but there's definitely a little more something to it. Yeah. Like, um, 
like uh, John Frederick's character actually goes, hey, man, you know, again, same word. He says, hey, I'm not a fag. And I don't even remember what prompts that. But it makes it kind of more loaded because there's these two guys and they're they're kind of intimate. And they're if you look at it like that and they're leaving together on that adventure, then the movie gets a little more loaded up, even at the dance where, you know, um, everybody's kind of paired up. Yeah. And they're paired up. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. You know? And so there's a whole nother reading of it that way too. When they take off for San Francisco, yes, they're off to hippie culture and God knows what adventures. And, you know, they could be Dion getting out of the neighborhood and the Belmonts yeah. leaving to go have adventures. Yeah. And, and who knows what they're going to do. Maybe he'll become a famous animator. You know, they're yeah. getting out, <laughs> but, but there's also a loaded up sexuality to the movie. With That's- Perry, no question. I think Perry's mysteriousness and sort of like uh, big, dumb, bohunk looks, I think, draw that comparison too. You know what I mean? I think he's, I think he's positioned that way just in what a screen presence he is. You know? I, I, think, I think Phil wanted it to be a little more, hey, what's going on with those guys? And, and when you watch it again, um, uh, when uh, when um, when John puts his hand on the buzzer to call the elevator, and Perry yeah. puts his hand over the over mm. his finger, yeah. that's a very kind of meet cute. I mean, they've already met, but it's like it's intimate. And yeah. I was gonna say saving a, it from the Baldies is a meet cute right there. That's a pretty meet cute right there. It's so, a great story. There's a whole thing going on. There's a yeah. whole other thing going on, and I think it's just the movie is loaded for bear. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also yeah. But it's also one of those movies too, where it's like, even if none of that's there, there's still so much to it too. You know what I mean? It's a movie that I think doesn't hurt to read that into it at all. You know, it doesn't feel like, oh, you're undermining what it's trying to do. You know what I mean? If you've seen these ghosts in it, I think the more you read into this movie, again, that's a very European sensibility, the more you can find in it, you know what I mean? But it's also, you don't need to do that at all. It works as a Hollywood movie and then you can read into it. It's that Philip Kaufman, like you're saying, I think that European sensibility is a very fair way to describe him. You know? And it's, it's interesting also that you say, you know, hey, this is not one of these movies that, you know, people recently have taken to thinking that movies are guidebooks to how to live, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think any audience, I mean, I remember watching this movie, okay, if I have the clamshell, then maybe I'm like 13 or 14. Yeah. And of course, I'm taken with the romance of the wanderers and everything, but you can make a distinction between like, that would be really fun. Okay, that's a dick move. You don't want to be using racial slurs. Okay, well, it's not cool to cop a feel, Um, but it is, that part is cool. It would be kind of cool to be, so you could pick and choose, you know, what you're going to take from it. And and in in that regard, they, as uh, flawed as they are, you know, Richie's kind of cool and kind of charming and Karen Allen really thinks he's cute. And I was watching that scene where like the the way it goes down when Karen Allen meets him on the street. Which just for context uh, to listeners, they're playing a game, a game, quote unquote game, where the guys is they pretend to bump into women and use that as an excuse to cop a feel and pull this like, hey, watch where you're going, lady, to make it doubly like insulting uh, to it. And he meets Karen Allen that way. He does. And of course, you know, there it's, it's a very powerful scene because she is not, um, that she's, she's, she doesn't like 
what he's doing. Yeah. But she still, there's some kind of attraction that they have together. And it sort of supersedes the fucked up circumstance that, that he's created. It's like, oh, we have a bigger connection than what we, the box we've been pushed into as people and the ways we behave culturally. Yeah. It, it oh, does. And, and all of a sudden she's, she, I mean, she's a tidal wave of stuff. She's carrying Lady Chatterley's lover. Yeah. She pretends to know about. She says, "Oh yeah, only the dirty parts." And he's like, "No, I like the whole thing." He doesn't even know there are dirty parts in this. Book. Yeah. Um, what, what does she ask him if he likes? And he says, "Only the dirty parts." What is the? the... She, no, she, he says, "Oh, that's a great book." She's like, "Yeah." No, you no, probably... no. At the end of the to end the scene, oh, he says he only tells his friends the dirty parts. When he oh yeah, she girls. said, "You're gonna go tell your friends about it," and he goes, "Only the dirty parts." That's a great. <laughs> right, which is a callback to the other. You know, it's a it's um. It's Kim Walsh is effortlessly up. charming, effortlessly charming as Richie. You know, you could see how she would fall for him, and vice versa. I mean, they're they're they've really got chemistry. You could yeah. feel it. I mean, and even gosh, Tony Callum, you know, uh, uh, yeah. she certainly feels it when they're playing strip poker. It's like she's not even in the room. Well, that's why I'm saying Despie's right. Is she's the only one who knows? Like, hey, you know, these two want to fuck. You know what I mean? Like, she oh, no, she immediately gets it. is like, how can, you know, how can Joey be blind to this? Just to go back to the, the scene on the street uh, between Ken Wall where they meet when, when uh, Joey's playing the game, just on the Fellini tip, and the woman keeps getting bigger and played by bigger and bigger actresses until they've found this like six foot three massive woman. That's very Fellini. That's like something straight out of Amacord is like the, the big women who pick up the main character and like pick them up and down and like moves them up and down. And armor cord it's almost exactly the same idea for that. oh and armor cord has an artist uh character right who is tried someone tries to um, try to pick up someone tries to pick him up on the pier or something like that so anyway uh i would say too that another thing kaufman does in this movie is he immediately knocks that shit down with the racial with the racial stuff you know the at the end with the football game where they say the Dell bombers they all uh, wussed out they're not going to show up and then they come with this huge parade yeah. onto the field you know uh, just that, and then, like in the lakers purple and gold and you just know they're fucked you know what a detail i love from that moment that you know you know that the wanders are screwed when they're wearing like jeans for the football game, you see them in <laughs> jeans and you're just like, oh, guys. But then the, this, the giant woman knocking him down during elbow tit as well, you know, is, you know, it's these dumb kids who've never, they're all virgins. They've never had sex before. This is the best thing they can do is try to cop this feel from women. And then he gets beaten into the sidewalk by this giant woman. <laughs> you know, Coffin is always calling them out, like saying, like, you think these kids, they, they seem like they know everything. They don't know but shit. But it's not a moral message. That's just not a moral funniest, message. No, not at the all. the funniest ending to that scene. Yeah. I think is what he's looking for. It's not a moral message at all. I'm just saying that, you know, for as much as you, anyone watching this movie thinks, I feel a little uncomfortable with the scene where they're all shouting racial uh, insults at each other. I think that there's (laughs) like a response to that in terms of like, yeah, but these kids don't know what the fuck they're talking about. There's a a huge sense of, um, um, there's a a feeling of like, I don't know if just church is the right word, but there's, Again, there's several things going on. Of course, because we have all the racial tension at the top, it's so much more touching and beautiful. Like when when Richie's having his part and he and he and he tells Clayton, yeah. like, "Hey, man, I really want you to stay, please." That's yeah. one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It chokes me up just a little bit to even say it. Yeah, I love no, that. It is, and and how the the leader of the Wongs is like, "Come on, man, let's all hang out." It's it's wonderful. <laughs> It's yeah, it's wonderful. really sweet. Wait, here's then, a question. Oh, sorry, go on, go on. No, 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 I don't want you to forget the question. 
I'll remember. I was, I was just going to say that regarding the the sexual hijinks, um, there is danger everywhere. Um, forgive me for being hyper focused on the dangers to male genitalia in the movie, but <laughs> as a proud wearer of some, uh, that's also. I mean, whether it's um, uh, Chubbs attacking uh, uh, Richie, yeah. you know, and causing real pain, and I thought Ken Wall played that so well. He really looks yeah. like he's in pain <laughs> to them getting rocks tied around them. I mean, yeah. the the movie is kind of like. It's characters who are, what, 16, 17, 18. The movie's very much thinking about well, Perry's their dicks. Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. It absolutely is. And in an adolescent way, too. You know what I mean? The movie sort of heightens, latches onto and heightens that adolescent sense of like, you know, wouldn't it be awesome? It's, you know, it's funny that, that, um, that Tony Ganos went on to be in Porky's because the tone of Porky's is not really remembered now. Porky's is like a sentimental, nostalgic look back at a different era. It's not just like a broad comedy that there's a kind of like sentimentalness to it, you know? And I think this movie has the same thing. This movie's tone is closer to something like, to like Diner, which has a similar like scene where, you know, Mickey Rourke is sliding his, you know, uh, his, his fucking dick in the popcorn. What am I, what am I dancing around this for? Um, well, I also felt uncomfortable saying it and then I just gave in. That this movie does belong to a different class of that stuff. This is just what I mean by its tone is so strange that really the only uh, artist I could compare it to is Fellini who has like, an incredible amount of fucked up sexual stuff and genuinely sexy sexual stuff in his movies and funny and mean-spirited and hard to defend stuff and morally ambiguous things and philosophically, ethically ambiguous stuff in his films. And I do think that film has this kind of tone. Um, one thing we haven't talked about much is Richard Price, who's the writer of the book on which it's based. Richard Price, I have no idea. To me, he's like an iconic figure. I never know what he's most famous for. You know, like he's he wrote for The Wire and was a crime novelist. He wrote Clockers. He's friends with Martin Scorsese. He wrote the wraparound short film sections for the bad video, right, with Michael Jackson at the private school and coming home. Uh, do people need to have who Richard Price is explained to them as sort of a, uh, he's a crime novelist, but he writes real stuff. He's like a journalist shoe leather crime novelist more than like a Raymond Chandler type crime novelist. And I think a lot of Richard Price seeps into this movie, but it takes it and does something else completely with it. And I was just wondering what you guys thought of Richard Price's influence on this. In a funny way, the thing, the rid thing that Richard Price is associated with that's most similar to this movie is I do think the bad short film, Michael Jackson's Bad, is it has a similar sort of like well, this is not really realistic that Michael Jackson is like, you know, uh, fighting gangs back in his old neighborhood and is worried about being a street tough and things. This is somewhat of a cartoon, but this is also like a cool and interesting little movie that Scorsese's directed here. Wait, 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 wait. Richard Price wrote the bad video? He wrote, yeah, that whole sequence about I'm going to jump out a window now. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd written Color of Money before that, right? So he and Scorsese were already yeah. working on stuff together. Yeah, it's funny. You should watch the Spike Lee documentary about the uh, anniversary of Bad, the 25th anniversary, what? because Richard Price and Scorsese are both like, yeah, the people who made the record came to us and they were like, we want to make sure Michael Jackson stays street. And they're like, why the fuck do they think we're the guys to make this Michael Jackson video? They need to get John Landis to do another thriller. So we did the best we could, but they sort of goof on it in a way that I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that was as much of a celebration. I think their reaction to it is your reaction a little bit of like, so we did this. It makes me want to jump out a window, you know? Ay, ay, ay. Well, I, I don't know, man. I just, I'm speechless. I'm speechless. But um, it's funny with Richard Price, and I, 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 it has this New York pedigree. Kaufman, not known for making New York movies, right? Because the right yeah. stuff is, you know, all his movies, Unbearable Lightness of Being, or um, Henry and June, or yeah. uh, period, I mean, God, Westerns, stuff up yeah. in the Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like his only New York movie, I think. Uh, it, early unless, unless Rising Sun is set in New York, which that feels like it, a, it feels like a California movie. Yeah, that's definitely yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's it has this great New York pedigree, and I like how you know this is a um, this doesn't have anything to do with the movie itself, but I think it does inform kind of the influence of the movie. This weird kind of underground influence that the movie has, uh, besides turning people onto like a ton of great music i think it really uses this 50 score amazing, amazing soundtrack maybe better than anything i've heard that that first when it when it cuts from those very awkward feet on the tv screen as the three stooges are on yeah and just the way he has his feet to that must be the greatest would that be a a a pan down would that be a uh whatever that camera move is i'm supposed to be the director but whatever that camera move is with a <laughs> it's with a, a camera the camera pans down um, to the streetlight and you hear a walk like a man from yeah. the four seasons. But I never heard drums like that. It's just that the, the blue of the sky in, in the, the, the way the titles come on the screen, it, it just really, it takes the song and it sort of amplifies it. And the same with, you know, all the great 50s music in the movie just seems it doesn't it's not used in a nostalgic way. The, the way a lot of 50s set movies or feels 60s set current. movies do. It makes it feel like alive in that time, not happy days or it, American Graffiti, which is another movie that you could compare this to. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't feel like that at all. An American Graffiti feel at all. No, I agree. It feels like it owns to me so many of those songs now. Like I can't hear Walk Like a Man without thinking of that opening sequence. You know, it takes them and it makes it live in that time period too. Or even the song, The Water, which is such a great iconic, you know, song. I love it. Uh, but it, it now it, that movie really, really does own it. There's a band that I love called the Dell Lords. And there were uh, Scott Kempner, Eric Amble, Frank Frunaro, and... Forgive me, Manny. I don't. Frankie Bonacic Rapelli. But they were so good. I remember that uh, Jay Cox, another Scorsese friend, yeah. uh, gave you know they tied the Dell Lords with U2 for Band of the Year in 1990 something. And a great huh. New York roots rock band. But yeah. they were named. Their kind of appearance was like a street gang. Yeah. And they were the Dell Lords, not only in in 
kind of homage to the Dell Vikings and those kinds of groups, but also to Dell Lord, who directed all those Three Stooges movies. Oh, interesting. Dell Lord. And I thought, you know what? I bet those guys saw The Wanderers. Yeah. And have, having gotten to know the, the, some of those guys a little bit, I, I have not asked that question yet, but I think oh, The Wanderers yeah. is a huge influence. And those guys knew Richard Price, too. I mean, it was that whole mm-hmm. circle of, like, let's take this gang culture and make something cool out of it. Something, yeah. uh, 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 make a tale that has a lot of different flavors, a lot of different angles to it. So this was my question I had earlier uh, that I definitely wasn't going to forget. You guys, your picks, who is your favorite gang? Is it just the Wanders or do you like one of the other gangs better? Who is, who is the gang that you like best in the Wanders? I will go first while you move on your answers. I think the Ford and Baldies are the best gang. I think their only problem is their shirts are filthy. They're the most inclusive. They've got Pee Wee and Roger. They just hang around all day. I like their leather jackets. I am into the Ford and Baldies, who I think get a, good, a bad rap for no reason other than that turkey tries to associate with them, but they don't even seem to like Turkey. It's not their fault. You know, no, they, they did. Joey him. mouthing off to him. Joey's walking up to him on their own turf, calling them, you know, pricks with ears, you know, ears without pricks. You know, what are they supposed to do? Just sit there and take it? No, Kiwi's Chris, right. Chris, Say it to his face. Say it to Tear's face, it's John. It's pricks with ears. <laughs> Uh, well, myself, I'm you know I know I'm supposed to root for the for the Wanderers, but I always thought the Dell Bombers were particularly cool. I love yeah. how they roll up with the cheerleaders and the whole nine yards, and um, they're bankrolled by Ken Foree. I always forget he's in this because he doesn't have any for line. like two shots. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. I like the Dell Bombers as well, and the, and the Baldies. It's too hard, man. It's, uh, I mean. Uh, you gotta love the Ducky Boys, though, just for as many times <laughs> as you can say, "Oh shit, it's Ducky Boy Country." You know, it's and I, and I did want to talk about their the their depiction in the Price book, which is you know uh, that scene, uh, Bill, you were talking about, where Tur- Turkey is a different character in the book uh, is killed. The character in the book offers him a blowjob, and then as they all turn up, they all start saying "blowjob." blowjob just repeating it like around him as they're like coming closer and closer to get him and it's a really eerie scene in the book i agree that i I like in the movie that they don't talk but that's a creepy ass moment in the book and one thing Um, that should be mentioned is uh the ducky boys were a real gang that uh controlled apparently a huge swath of the bronx yeah uh and so it's interesting to take the movie in that context. And the big brawl at the football field is based on a real famous uh, bra- uh, brawl that had happened at the time. A bunch of the reports of is that there were like several thousand teenage kids just fighting each other with like, you know, knives and bike chains. And, yeah, the and, duckies uh, have the, uh, the Webster Avenue walking stick, which is a baseball bat studded with razors in the book. Um, but just in the movie, just the way they're like sneaking out of church casually, I got to go kill somebody real quick, you know, and the way they eat wafers individually kind of just I'll grab it from. The- <laughs> I know it's so <laughs> this culture is so bizarre. And that they have a saint out in front, which Phil Kaufman calls Saint Ducky Boy, sitting in front of the church. Uh, and, the way, and the way they just materialize in, on the field, you know, one at a time, yeah. which is, again, straight out of the book, how they just kind of show up and they're just there to... And straight out of the horror movie. 
It's yeah. they pull some Michael Myers shit in that scene. The like high school <laughs> life being interrupted by, did you see that? And the like, I don't see anything, Lori. He wants your number, Lori. No, that kind of thing. But with the ducky boys, you know, it's very, uh, very interesting. They're totally scary. And, and, and he, it's just wonderful that it's just another example of those, those wildly shifting tones. This story is probably bullshit. I'm not a kiss guy. But I did read as I was researching the Wanderers that Ace Freely said that he was, you know, he was doomed. She was going to be in the Ducky. They were going to make him join the Ducky Boys. And then luckily with music, he got out. And I'm like, I think he just watched the Wanderers. I don't think he's about that. I mean, friend he's, Paul Cooney used to mention that. Yeah, he's, sh- he's short enough to be a Ducky Boy. That's true about Ace Freely. He's a t- slight little man. Hence the boots. <laughs> so it's crazy. The, the football. So re- the, no, no, go ahead, John. The football scene, John. The football scene. That's around the book, too, what uh, we were discussing earlier, Chris, uh, where Emilio grabs the ducky boy and he's just using him as a club to swing against other five foot <laughs> ducky boys in the area. It's a different character in the book, uh, character Lenny, who doesn't make it into the movie, who does it. But uh, just that scene gets so insane uh, to that point. <laughs> that's another really interesting thing about the movie is Emilio, you know, his, his, the, his bodybuilding stuff, you know, when he's yeah. lifting weights, Yeah. you forget when, you know, when you're, when you're young, just how like impressive that stuff is, yeah. you know, um, you know, um, it's kind of scary. There's these big muscle bound dudes that can, the threat of like physical harm is yeah. kind of an uh, humiliation, not only physical humiliation, but also, you know, Emilio um, having sex with this guy's mom behind his wife's yes. back. And there's just. And also this, with the idea that Perry's mom is an alcoholic. So yeah. she's being taken advantage of too on top of it. He's showing up with bottles of all of the various gross colored flavored alcohol they drink in this movie. But oh yeah, it's such a mean prick. I mean, what he does yeah. to Perry at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the movie, it's just, it's so rare to find this combination of like heady good times and like real, Oh shit. Real scary stuff. Yeah. I think that, Emilio that first time he shows up because he it's almost right after Perry has been introduced beating up the uh, the Fordham Baldies and you think oh Perry's this huge invincible guy and then you see Emilio and he's so diesel it does draw this distinction between like and then there's adults who are really scary on top of this and I think that that's a recurring theme in the movie is that uh, they're somehow play acting to everything the kids are doing. And then you have the chubby, the Glasso brothers and Emilio and uh, Clinton stitches cousin. I don't know who those affiliates are that can for replays that are the real deal adult version of all of this and how much um, all of those characters are almost exclusively scary. There's not good adults in this movie, really, that you see. There's that scene where, which is a great scene, where the Glassos uh, brutalize, yeah, yeah. brutalize the, the pool, or not the pool, the bowling hustlers. You know, it's such an amazing scene because it is genuinely disturbing. Um, but just their style, uh, the, the adult figures in the film are, are terrifying generally or upsetting in some way powerful figures too 
I agree. And I, I love that we're introduced to Perry when Tara shows up to the fight and they kind of look at each other across the way. And it's that like that Sanjuro moment, you know, where he says, uh, I don't bother trying to fight Shirmafune. He's going to take too long to kill. You know, he kind of sizes yeah. him up like that. And then almost immediately we have that moment in the hallway between Perry and Emilio where you realize this is two different, this is two different levels here. You know? Yeah. Yeah that this would be too much for him to, to fight through. But it also makes Perry, who's been uh, such a, introduced as such a powerful figure, he's immediately turned back into a kid, like almost instantly. He's not the invincible badass of the film that you feel like he's going to be for that five minutes. He's turned back into a kid right away, and he's got problems with his mom, and Emilio sort of puts him in his place very quickly. And it's, it's fascinating the way this movie deals with like power and powerfulness and feelings of helplessness and feelings of power, you know? And I think yeah. that helplessness is a running theme throughout the movie of being overwhelmed by the ducky boys of existence, you know, is well, a, the, that's, a, that's a great, that's a great point. When the ducky boys decide to take out uh, um, Perry's arm and just go to work on his arm. Yeah. And all of a sudden this amazingly powerful guy is rendered completely helpless. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's scary. Yes. John, what of, were you going to say? I was going to say a lot of my bodyguard sort of parallels with Perry as a character, you know, um, when Matt Dillon in that movie hires the, the adult bully, like the genuine hard ass to come and beat him up. And you realize like he's the whole movie. Adam Baldwin has had no problem taking out, you know, the little fish. But when you get a big fish from the real world, it's a completely different story. I love also how Emilio as a character defines Joey. It's more, it's drawn out more in the book because it says Joey is such a good fullback because he's used to dodging and running from Emilio who will just literally punch him for no reason. Like anytime his son walks past him, he'll like punch him full on in the head. Like he's that kind of an asshole. So that's kind of defined Joey's squirreliness and, you know, sort of his, his quickness to anger that we see in the movie. Yeah. Uh, And I love that he's an artist kind of comes up, but isn't, you know, it's not a, a big deal. It's just sort of something that he does. And he's never yeah. even thought about it seriously because he's too busy worrying about what his dad's going to do to him every single day. Yeah. And that's, that's like the heaviest moment in the movie, even though it's, it, again, it's, it's so over the top. When Emilio punches him after the big ba- uh, football brawl. Yeah. yeah, when he's trying to say, dad, we won, dad, we beat him. And it's like, did his dad do it on purpose? Is his dad just so drunk with rage? Or is it just like, that's what he does to his son and they can't even share a moment. It's so uh, heartbreaking. It's so, it makes you feel so helpless in that moment and sort of the helplessness of life and the helplessness of being a young adult is something that I think courses through this movie, you know, that, the you know, the world is changing around you too and you're not in charge of the changes and to set it in 63, the world is literally changing in all ways and you can't control it. The president's going to get killed, you know, um, that, that things are so beyond your control is something that you feel in this movie, but you still have to make decisions. You just can't submit it. You've still got to be in charge of yourself. There's a moment in the football fight, which again, just to, you can't even talk about like what a crazy tone switch it is when it goes from all the dust being kicked up and the kind of ominous sound on the soundtrack to the the wanderers, right? Suddenly the music pops up and suddenly there's like the t- the shift in tone is yeah. so abrupt. 
but it's a great moment where Richie, and again, I don't know if he's uh, just so beaten so badly that he can't say his words, right? But it sounds like Ken Wall says, ducker fuckers. And the subtitle says he says ducker suckers, which is definitely not right. Do you guys remember that scene? Does he say yeah. ducker fuckers? Is that what he says? I do not know. I think it's unintelligible is what I don't know either. I, I like that. He, I like thinking that he unintelligibly says ducker fuckers in the heat of this battle. <laughs> well, it's pretty spectacular the way that, that I, I am always thrilled when I, when I watch that scene, what a nice, neat way to wrap up so many things. And then at the same time, just knock you back on your heels with that moment with, with uh, Emilio and his son. It's just, I mean, there's so much good shit in that movie. It's almost not fair. Yeah. Am I, am I wrong? Is did the next Phil Kaufman movie, the right stuff? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's an epic, but this is an epic that takes place, you know, within four blocks. You know, but it's <laughs> emotionally, it's an epic. And one of the great things is that at that beginning, those first two, that happens twice where the one they're running through the neighborhood. One time they're walking through the neighborhood with the troops, you know, and it's exciting. Mm-hmm. And one part they're being chased through the neighborhood, but it really lays out the geography of the area. And all of a yeah. sudden you really feel like, well, it looks like Venice. I mean, it has all these little, you know, little alleys and <laughs> doorways and uh it's an impoverished neighborhood but it just seems sort of exotic and, yeah. and it, it's full of adventure in some way i mean it's um man it's this i i just i think phil kaufman's such an underrated director and here he was just really able to cut loose and really yeah. i mean he's always his movies are filled with ideas and yeah, and you know what movie he left to make this film, right, Bill? Was it Star Trek? The Star Trek movie, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Well, I would say fascinating. I <laughs> <laughs> so uh, think, Bill, let me ask you. You've talked about Karen Allen. I'm curious, do you, the scene where he follows, he thinks he sees Karen Allen at the end, he's been, he's, uh, being forced to get married. He's having his bachelor party, he sees Karen Allen walk by and he follows her. Right. And she goes into, to a, a, a village club where she's sitting in the front row to see uh, Bob Dylan perform times. They are changing in a little place. Do you, do you think, you know, you had sort of disagreed me with me when I said that, uh, that Richie can't live that life. That's not his life. Do you think he could have ever integrated into her life in that way would richie have been some guy who could be sitting there with you know beatniks listening to bob dylan 100 percent, 100 percent. and that's a naivete in me you know maybe but it, it's also that i meet you know when you meet these guys you know i've been whether yeah, it's what am I've i been, fucking talking about rob cotto would have been fucking sitting there in the front row <laughs> he probably would have but i got to meet dion and you know yeah. he, he he you know the it's almost like or you meet a lot of record industry people that are real rough and tumble guys. Yeah. But they just happened to get into showbiz, wind up in LA. Yeah. And you just, it's just, a, it's just an inch away. And all of a sudden you're like, I think, I think he could, I think he, listen, this guy doesn't try to join the Baldies. Yeah. They don't hear the whistle. He meets Karen <laughs> Allen. He goes in there and they all meet up. And they all meet up at Woodstock, man. <laughs> what are you doing here, Tony? What are you doing here? Um, I, I think a much li- more beautiful ending than I had ever been imagining. Oh, I, I just think life is so 
just seconds. I think it's seconds. I think you just shit just goes by like I you know, and, and and maybe it is a predetermination, but I, I feel like it's not. I feel that's what makes the movie that much more tragic. Yeah, I think you you're know? right. I take I mean, that. Maybe, Despy, maybe. I'm maybe. too much of a Despy partisan. You're right. Maybe, you know what's you beautiful, know? guys? You know what's beautiful about having Both. a great guest, a great guest like Bill Tech on this uh, podcast is because I didn't, I, I really thought Richie, it's a tragedy when they hand, when the Colossos hand him his, his shirt and say, you'll grow into it. That's like, He's looking at his future and it's nothing, you know, it's, tor- it's terrible. It's a tragedy. Listening now and just hearing Bill, hearing you talk about right stuff. I'm thinking the right stuff is just a continuation of the Wanderers. It's these guys who hang out together. A bunch of them go <laughs> off to, you know, be a part of the space program. Chuck Yeager, he stay- he's happy in the pond that he's in. He stays there and he becomes his own man. Richie could become his own man for the same, the same way, you know? Just stand yeah. there. He could, he could develop. He could evolve within that neighborhood any way that he wants. That's interesting. So That's now I'm convinced. That he <laughs> it wasn't be, the Despy argument, but it was. That he's, right well, see, I think it's different than the Despy. I think it's that you're, you're determined to be that kind of guy, but you're saying he can determine his own life within that neighborhood. Within too. that No, within I, that think you're, I think you're right. Within the Bronx. You're, yeah. you're right, Bill, that, that it is you definitely in any industry uh, in the arts run into these people that you're very surprised that, that they have, I don't want to be condescending and say sensitive soul, but like they're down with the right stuff. So this guy that we all know a little bit, uh, well, I know him real well, Jonathan Herzberg, who um, you, he has this great blog called uh, Obscure One Sheet. And if you love the Warriors, you can check out Obscure One Sheet. There's a bunch of info on the different versions of the Warriors that are out there. Warriors. Oh, and I say the Warriors. Yeah, it's I'm okay. Sorry. It's the worst. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, after you had busted my chops for making that mistake earlier. I know. And I was writing all these nasty things like that, that, that darn Thunderbird <laughs> is saying, you know. But um, so, so he's got great stuff on Obscure One Sheet about the different versions of the Wanderers. And he works at Kino Lorber. And he, he went to go see um, – he went to go see the, the Wanderers the last time they showed it. And I think that started him on like a process of – figuring out who had the rights to it to try to put it out. And it, it, after like two, they didn't know, nobody knew who had the rights, but even Phil Kaufman didn't know. And it turned out that the rights of Warner Brothers had quietly lapsed. I don't think, I don't know. If oh, really? Knew. I don't think anybody knew. And they were able to find the original rights holders and put the movie out a couple of years ago. I think it came out on, uh, on Kino Lorber classics or KL classics yeah. and then they re-released it in theaters which was really cool that's when I got to see it in the theater and that was Kino Lover Repertory and I got to see it at the theater and they had Phil Kaufman and his son uh, Peter um, on screen with their Wanderers gear and he was just so cool and they did these all the whole cast really got into it so Ken Wall was tweeting about it and, <laughs> and, and Tony Caleb and everybody that had something to do with the movie you know that was passionate about it still and it, it that was really cool for me to get to like kind of have a second resurgence of wanderers. Yeah, it absolutely is. That that's really interesting. I'm always shocked when um, stuff that's with a major studio like Warner brothers is allowed to lapse. It's always, it's always puzzling what films slip through the cracks like that because Warner brothers is so good at keeping a tight grip on what they have normally. 
I know. I know. And I think it also goes to show the really what I was saying before, a cult film in some ways, that it's seen as like if they're letting the light rights lapse, that it's they don't have their finger on it in some way. They're not not even paying attention to what happens with it. It's interesting. It's funny, and I don't think it. it I think it got lost a little bit in the. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I on the, the I'm. IMDb page, they have a link to the Siskel and Ebert review yeah. of it. And I know those things sometimes you just want to hit yourself in the head with a frying pan. Um, and it, But it's interesting. It was on the Buried Treasures show, like pictures yeah. that didn't really make much noise. And it, I think Gene Siskel picked it and said, listen, the first time I saw this movie, I thought it was all over the place. Second time I liked it more. The third time I was like, this is amazing. Now, that's not my experience. I saw that the first time out the gate and I was like, this is spectacular. This is yeah. not like anything I've ever seen. I had the same experience where I loved it, but I, I can see what he means. I can see that this movie is just weird enough to kind of throw off someone who's expecting like a straightforward coming of age gang movie because there's so many scenes, you know, introduce strange characters. They literally turn into weird areas like Ducky Boy Country and it doesn't go anywhere that you would expect. And I think those shifts of tone have a lot to say about that too. So I could see why a casual viewer at first would be, not sure what to make of this film. I think that maybe is something too that's very special about it. That is, and how well Kaufman did it. You know, he really became the American epic movie maker for me. He made three movies in a row, right? Stuff on Burial Light and Sabine and Henry and June that are like, holy shnikes. Yeah. Those are three pretty freaking incredible movies. But I, to me, The Wanderers kind of stands above them in, in many ways because it's it's just, not that they have to be compared, but it's there's something yeah. really special about it. Well, all of them, starting with The Wanderers, are adaptations of almost unadaptable books. Like I said, the Richard Price novel is, you know, one sketch after another. And it's what he did with that to make it all make sense and to have, you know, to reassign things to characters, to give it more of a flow is really impressive. And he did the same thing with Wright Stuff, the same thing with Henry and June. Uh, and, and unbearable lightness, life, yeah, course. yeah. Those are all a lot. Of those are like a lot of stream of consciousness in those novels, and more themes than like a story. And of course, Henry June taken from diary entries. I mean, it's really amazing that he was able to do anything with those books and and make them into movies. He's such an interesting guy, um, and I think he even got to know Anais Nin and at certain point of his Whoa. life. Yeah, that's I really mean, cool. I think him and his wife met uh, Henry Miller and befriended him. You know, his first movie, I think, made a bunch of noise at, at Con, really experimental. And then he got to know Henry Miller and later in life, Anias. He's just a, or as Henry says, Anish. Um, <laughs> um, what a great performance from Fred Ward. I mean, this isn't about that, but. but yes, you are Fred Ward, sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Very good. Very good stuff. He's a really incredible director. He's, I was saying to John earlier too, when you look at his filmography, um, you always, normally when you look at a director's filmography, you're like, oh, I forgot about that one. But with Philip Kaufman, it's like, I remember every single one of those and it's like only the hits. Like he only made the big Philip Kaufman movies. There's not like minor Philip Kaufman movies until, you know, Rising Sun is sort of minor obviously but quills it's sort of like the the big ones are like the only ones it's not like you look at it and go like oh yeah light sleeper i forgot about that with paul schrader or something yes you yes, know, yes it's like only the big ones with him he really swung for the fences and he did not um 
I mean, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of, of kind of his point of view. Yeah. You, you know, the, his images are so beautiful. You think of like mm-hmm. Caleb Deschanel's, uh, uh, the cinematography and the right stuff. Just to, to draw a comparison, Sam Shepard on the horse coming up to the, to the, to the plane that's going to break the sound barrier. But the, the Wanderers has images that are it, it, not as epic in scale, but they're emotionally epic. Dolph Sweet coming down the stairs on that weird chair. Yeah, on the that like, is yeah. freaking terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> I it scared the shit out of me when I was you know thirteen and I saw that or twelve or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and it's again, it's 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 the weird. You know, like that's that's a. Uh, a device that would be used for somebody who's meaningfully handicapped in some way that you would feel like, Oh, if you need that to get up down the stairs, you're, you're enfeebled, which is the opposite of, of Chubb in some way, you know, it's a funny, just putting this ultra powerful, intimidating character on that thing and turning that chair into something powerful in that way is such a funny filmmaking gesture, such a, a strong. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I, I think one of the, another interesting thing that Phil did that his contemporaries didn't do, and I've read the script notes or for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you probably have read them, you know, where they're having a story conference meeting as George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Phil Kaufman. And they're basically putting out, spitting out the plot of the movie in a brainstorming session. Yeah. Uh, um, Unfortunately, that got brought up on social media recently to cancel George Lucas for saying Marion should be uh, should have been twelve years old or thirteen years old when <laughs> Indiana hooked up. Anyway, I guess that was one of those weeks when I took a break from social media, which I've been I was, was doing good, lately. Good week to take a break. Oh, I missed that completely. <laughs> that is bumming me out. But, because you're um, right, that's a fascinating conversation. But yeah, please go ahead. No, I was just going to say that you know, with George and Stephen and like his quote-unquote contemporaries, you know, I think guys like the guys in Phil Kaufman's movies would have scared them and freaked them out. Like, they did not go near those guys. Not only these are actors playing these guys, they don't even have that. Those guys don't don't exist. There are no, like, he-men, like, in the right stuff or, like, the guys in this movie. That is not even a factor, you know? Yeah. Um, Phil Kaufman seemed to embrace and and then the sensuality that he embraces in all his movies is a really sensuous filmmaker yes Um, for sure for sure you know not just Henry and June but even the right stuff it's a sexy movie that stuff with Jaeger and his wife and it's like what so so sexy is it Barbara Hershey playing the way it is Barbara Hershey at the top of top of her her game you know yeah, uh, I love. Memorable. It's so beautiful. I like when they flirt well, at the bar. Yeah. Oh, it's so good when they flirt at the bar and 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 she takes off on mm-hmm. on on the horse and um, he's going to go after her and this girl stops him and he's just kind of like and he leaves anyway. And the woman behind the bar says, "Forget it, honey. That's his wife. <laughs> That's his wife. I love it. Awesome." <laughs> But it's funny the, too. Unbearable lightness of being is so incredibly sexy as oh, well, that, and incredibly. And that's something I think a lot about with the book. One of the complaints I have—not complaints with Milan Kundera—when you read somebody writing about sex and sexiness in a book, it's always like a little, like you know, 
and unbearable lightness of being book he talks about like the eye of her rump and it's like this is gross and me out dude. you know what i mean like i don't want to hear this and but then in the movie it's like it's lena olin and it's juliette binoche and it's like irresistibly erotic stuff in the movie and i feel like oh that that is it exceeds it does what the book can't do in those moments it takes this unadaptable book and then adds to it in moments uh just where the image cinema image is going to be so much better at conveying those things and being seductive in those ways uh if you get a good director like philip kaufman somebody who's capable of handling it he does seem to be really really tapped into that stuff i know his wife co-wrote a couple of these movies with him and um just seeing the there's something in the spirit of the movies talk about an auteur yeah you can that you sense that the um, kind of what a what a cool guy he must be, and then you see the relationship which I got to see on screen and at some of these Q and A's with his son Peter, and you go, this is so sweet. This guy yeah. really seems tapped into something cool. Yeah, and the moment where they're in the car and they're, they've ducked down because the Colossus are coming out, you know, before the party at the house, and. Joey can't see, but Richie is stroking her cheek. Uh, cheek. You know, it's they're having so that. So amazing, his hand on her cheek. Just between the two of them is a really gorgeous film moment as well. Even it's, though, even though Joey's butt is right there in their face. <laughs> yes, I mean what? it's. No, I was going to say because we were talking earlier about about image that I keep we keep we should mention that by Michael Chapman, who of course shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, and one of the great. DPs of that era, you know, um, and that, that this movie really looks incredibly good, that this is a great looking movie. And I think that it wouldn't work if it weren't so uh, well filmed. It is really a, a, a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And I think um, when you look at, you know, going back, I just wanted to touch back again. Well, you know, the party line would be that Europeans are much more sophisticated Sexually, the Americans are more repressed. Yeah. And, but the uh, thing of us saying that Phil's a European uh, sensibility, uh, it, it, it does seem to be true because those contemporaries of his, those guys don't have any sex in their movies. They don't yeah. have, they don't have, not only they don't have any manly men, but they don't have any women really that are doing the things that uh, people that are engaged erotically or centrally do, which is all over these movies. Yes. Yeah. And I think it, that's definitely, it's fascinating how influential those filmmakers are when they are so completely, it's not even uh, sexless. It's just like children about it. You know what I mean? Like, like something like uh, um, Kate Capshaw's character in Temple of Doom is just like what a five-year-old would think a sexy lady is. It's just like this absurd thing you know what i mean and and so much of them you're you're right you go through a lot of them and they don't even uh really really have that even somebody like scorsese it's not necessarily a heavy element of his films you know to have sexiness and eroticism and it's it's not and yet the women do come off yes pretty like lorraine well he has he has better women characters than than, you know george lucas well it's funny that you mentioned kate kasher because i saw that movie again i took my kid to see it at the movies i hadn't seen it since i was a kid it's it's and i love raiders um and and i've never been which philip kaufman wrote the story for (laughs) that's right 
but I'd never been super into Temple of Doom. Ironically, I did actually enjoy the scenes where they were trying to sort of hook up in yeah. the hotel. And I thought, this went right over my head when I was 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe that Indy, and it's a kid's movie, yeah. was trying to get with her. I know this is a little off. This has yeah. gone off topic here. <laughs> but it did strike me as like, oh, my God, they're trying to get busy. And it kind of reminded me, to me, it seemed uh, almost, uh, but generally, I, I, I do agree with that assessment. And, uh, and I, I think I brought it up. Yeah, Phil was really tuned into some worldly stuff. And when you read his life story, you see like, oh, this guy really kind of bummed around Europe and, and wanted to, again, I'm not trying to make it all like, you know, Europeans know the secret of the world. Yeah, but, no. But I'm there's not. something about that sensibility that does inform his very American take on, on things. Yes. There's, there's no question there's some cultural differences there. And I wouldn't even say, you know, it's not sitting here and saying Philip Kaufman is a better director than Steven Spielberg or something like that. I don't think we're, uh, I'm not certainly not trying to make that argument right now. That's not the, the contrast I'm drawing. And I, I agree with you. I would never pull the like, oh, in Europe, they're so much more sophisticated. I think it's just there's cultural differences and something about Philip Kaufman's sensibility feels more at home in European art cinema than it does with all of those guys in the new Hollywood who well, the thing that's funny about Phil very American. Now, the, the funniest thing though, is everyone fetishizes seventies American cinema so much. And yeah. you, you would never hear somebody bring up Philip Kaufman's name when they're talking about the new Hollywood Scorsese and Altman and Friedkin and all those guys. Never would you would hear his name brought up, but he yeah. in a way was a lot more experimental than they were. And I would say almost a kinship with Altman in a lot of ways. When you think about, White Dawn and Great Northfield Minnesota Raid in those early films, it's definitely like twisting genres around in really different and original ways. He is definitely, the, he's the definition of a great auteur. He's a great writer. He's someone who can bring those original ideas onto the screen. But even though people acknowledge, you know, that he's made great movies, he's never going to get brought up as one of the great artists that everybody loves so much from that, that, that decade. Well, when you talk about Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, and White Dawn, and that, and we were talking about the male, male characters and yeah. the uh, brutality. Oh my God! Especially in like White Dawn, these are they're terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and 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 I think they're more sort of distant from their character. They're able to show a type of guy that really doesn't exist. In that over otherwise, maybe like John Huston's more Marish movies, like a Fat City or something. Oh, good comparison. Yeah. You know, something like that. Wise Blood. I would have thought. Wise Blood. Wise Blood is a very Philip Kaufman-ish movie. That's an interesting comparison too. Maybe, well. And Huston was a big guy. He adapted a lot of famous books at the time, Under the Volcano and Red Badge of Courage. The Dead is very um, Kaufman-like well, now that I think of yeah, it. Uh, did so many different kind of films and obviously was a veteran by the time the 70s rolled around, but he also was someone who is more outside than a lot of those maverick directors that everyone praises from the Yeah, time. yes. The John Huston connection feels interesting, although I, you know, there obviously have different sensibilities in a lot of ways. I think John Huston is, is in some ways more of a negativist, a little darker, a little more pessimistic than Philip Kaufman is. Philip Kaufman's movies aren't. That might be also why I don't see uh, the ending of The Wanderers as such a bummer. Is just Philip Kaufman doesn't seem cynical ever in his movies to me. 
there's a sort of absence of cynicism. And even in this movie, in The Wanderers, that I think is a winning quality to it. Um, maybe, you know, maybe you can make an argument that there's cynicism in it, but I don't think it's felt in it, you know? No, I, I think it's not cynical at all. I mean, just to shoot uh, someone going into, someone listening to Bob Dylan as an example of hope, and then yeah. someone not being able to go in and not being able to make that is super like hopeful and assigns all these attributes to not only San Francisco and escape, but Bobby Dylan. I mean, I think it's a really romantically infused movie. Yeah. Even in the sense of despair, it's romantic. Yes. You know? 100% romantic. Yeah. Um, and a quick, interesting aside. I, I never heard this on any Phil Kaufman thing ever. I was listening to Bill Conti be interviewed on a podcast and he was really like loose, you know, and they were talking mm -hmm. about his score for the right stuff. And this is off the mark of the wanderers, but um, I always love the way that the right stuff is scored, you know, yeah. because it's not a rousing Bill Conti score. It's a subtle Bill Conti score. You know, it's, it's not victory, which is my favorite of the scores, or Rocky or mm -hmm. something. And, um, and then they were talking to him about it. How did you work with the guy? And, da, 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 da. and he, Bill was like, I think he figured nobody's going to hear this podcast. He's like, you know, actually, Phil didn't really want me for that movie. I think he wanted like Philip Glass or something. Yeah. That was, <laughs> that was all the producer put me in that movie. Wow. He was against it. And I was like, oh, my God. So, I mean, it just kind of goes to show that even this great artist who's making this movie with an intermission. I mean, I saw the right stuff at the movies with an intermission. Yeah. Um, still had to kind of play the game a little bit and do what he had to do to get that movie up there. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's interesting too, John, that you mentioned that he isn't, um, for some reason, he's like the odd man out with the seventies Hollywood stuff. It's really true. And I think as a result, the wanderers is, is somehow an odd film out in that same category that it's still the, it still feels like an orphan of a movie to me. Would you say that's because Phil's movies, like Houston's movies, are grown-up movies? Yes. That's, I mean, that's certainly got a that's lot to do with it. why yeah. I like Philip Kaufman and I don't necessarily, you know, most of those guys, even when I really like a lot of their movies, like somebody like Brian De Palma, I don't know that I'd describe any of those movies as grown-up movies in some way. And I think that that's also, it's funny <laughs> for how childish he is in some ways, like an overgrown kid. The scripts that um, John Milius does, I always feel like are actual grown-up stuff from the 70s Hollywood. I respond to John Milius a lot more than I do a lot of new Hollywood stuff because I feel like he's at least concerned with and caught up with adult things even if he has a sort of like tabloid uh uh like heroic maybe operatic somewhere between opera and comic books approach to all of that stuff it still feels about adult things like john houston in a way that look honestly i don't get that feeling from scorsese you know what I mean? It's a lot of characters who have some kind of arrested dysfunctional development in his best movies. They're, they're, they are arrested characters. They're yeah. not, uh, they're not, they're not grown up. People. They're not fully I, I, adult. And then obviously George Lucas and, and Steven Spielberg are, uh, belong to that blockbuster, all Ford Cronjets, kids and adults. And, but, 
just for fun kind of stuff but, most of the time. And I think, and I'm not trying to like keep everybody's glass full, but I yeah. think the, the reason that all those movies work, yeah. they appeal in different ways is because those people are all kind of doing their thing. Yes. They're doing their own, yes. Yes. they're following their own vision. And that, that's why they're all tours. Even if their worldview may be not as... Um, yeah, I was up, not trying to speak badly worldview. of anybody. You know, that's why I picked uh, somebody like De Palma that I ad- admire. I don't think that it's necessarily it was just uh, to say that, that this is a... Uh, you know, a different filmmaker, that Philip Kaufman is slightly a different breed than his contemporary. He really is, and he's, like you said, sadly, uh, not spoken about enough. I, I agree 100%. Final thoughts for this? We should, this has been a good conversation. Thank you very much for being, very much for being on, Bill. I feel yeah, like I, we should be, bring it towards the end. I feel kind of bad because I enjoy your show so much and I enjoy your site so much. And I feel like I was on recently and there's nothing I'd rather do than talk movies with, with, with Funderburg and Cribs, like almost nothing. Maybe that makes me, you know, more of an arrest development guy, but then (laughs) that's who I am. That's what I like to do. Bill, my final question is what do you think the ultimate message of the wanderers is? Oh my goodness. Um, I think the movie, I don't know what the message is. I think the movie's about consequences. And I think um, it's a really kind of devastating portrait of being trapped. And what's so kind of wonderfully subversive and imaginative about it is that it's an incredibly giddy, high, optimistic movie that's also about getting trapped. Um, by just, I mean, sometimes you're born trapped in a way, which is an ironic thing for a movie called The Wanderers. Uh, there's <laughs> so much to unpack in that movie. And, 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 and what delights in the, it also takes such delight in the performances of its actors and such delight in this great music. And it's, it's, it's really, right, really a joyous movie. Absolutely. I, I agree 100% that this is a movie full of joy. And having you on to talk with you, Bill, was a total joy. Obviously, you're welcome to come back anytime. We always love having you on here. I feel like I'm bullguarding the Pink Smoke Boys, but I can't help it. I, I love it. I love being on with you guys. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome, man. Bill, I just want to remind you, if we're going to travel together, you got to promise not to be an asshole. <laughs> That's great, man. Have a good night, everyone.